this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. In the midst of all this COVID-19 crisis, I want to talk a little bit about lobsters. I don't mean to make light of the situation, but a lobster is actually an interesting analogy for where we are right now. I don't know if you know this. I was taught this by our next guest that when a lobster actually grows to a certain point, in order to continue to grow, it actually needs to shed its hard external shell. It lies somewhat naked, vulnerable on the ocean floor until that new shell has a time to form. It's called molting. And we are right now in a molting process. Many business owners, maybe you, feel the worst is upon us right now and that you need to restructure and rethink your business. And that's a molting process. It's jettisoning what's no longer working for you. And it's bringing in a new way of thinking, a way of thinking of your business as a more durable asset. Perhaps that's recurring revenue subscription models. Perhaps it's a new product line. Maybe it's getting out of some things that are not serving you anymore. Either way, I hope this next interview helps you think about that process. My next guest, Joshua Dick, just did exactly that. He went from running a family business with seven different divisions. He jettisoned six of them to focus on one, built the company up, and when they reached $5 million of EBITDA, he decided it was time to sell. He He will tell you the entire story, and I think you'll find it inspiring. He's telling it to you from Florence, Italy, the epicenter of the COVID-19 crisis. So this interview has lots of layers to it. I hope you find it helpful in this time. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Joshua Dick. Josh Dick, welcome to Built This Out Radio. John, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You look like you're sitting in a beautiful, I don't know, European town. Tell me, tell me where you are right now and why that's significant to you. I am talking to you from my home office here in Florence, Italy, um, a place that I chose to move with my wife and three daughters a little, uh, almost four years ago after I sold a business. Wow. And, and how is it there now on the ground? What's, give, just give me a sense of the, yeah, the vibe. It's quite strange. You know, it's really a, a weird thing because Florence continues to be beautiful and spectacular and the weather here in Tuscany is, is marvelous, but it's empty. You know, this whole situation with the lockdown and the coronavirus has been an overwhelming experience for myself and for my family. And, um, you know, as I said to you in the pre-show, the, the catchphrase here in Italy is, io resto a casa. I stay at home, which is the sort of rallying cry of everyone here in Italy during this very difficult time. 
Yeah. Why Italy? How, how come you chose Italy uh, after you sold your company? So the, the sort of three criteria that my wife and I approached were an opportunity for our, our children to learn another language. Yeah. Uh, we had been living in the New York area. We wanted better weather, particularly my wife. And then we were really trying to identify um, strong international schools that gave our kids an opportunity to become global citizens, but also to have a connection back to their American roots. Got it. And, and, and Milan, not Milan, but uh, you're, you're in um, Florence. In Florence, yeah. Ticked all the boxes. Yeah. And, you know, also my business had a lot of connections to the coffee industry. So I had right. spent a lot of time in Italy supplying products to coffee machine manufacturers. So you've lived the dream. You, you built a company, sold it, and now are, are living in, um, in the kind of place of your dreams. So let's go back to, yeah. yeah, let's go back to how it all began. So tell me about Ernix. Yeah, so Ernex was one of seven product lines that had been part of a business that had been started by my great-grandfather. Oh, really? And it was basically a textile company that made all different products for the restaurant industry. And amongst those products were coffee filters, cloth coffee filters that you would filter in a big diner, you might see. And um, after I had had a career in investment banking, working for Salman Brothers, going to get an MBA and working for Unilever and consumer packaged goods, the business that was run then by my dad was struggling. And uh, I was asked to come in and take a look at how things were going and what was happening. And I did sort of a traditional assessment of what was happening in the business, what was there, what I liked. And I quickly realized, one, that I, it was important to me to not necessarily work with my dad, but two, to focus. <laughs> Um, and I made a decision um, pretty quickly that if I was going to do this thing that I had really never planned on doing, we were going to close six of those seven product lines and I was going to figure out how to be something in coffee. And what ended up evolving and becoming the, the company called Ernex Brands was this one offshoot of what had been the family business making cleaning products, detergents for cleaning coffee machines. We took and built our brand and brand identity and formulas but very soon after I was able to take over the business in a family transaction, bought a competitor, the largest competitor that did this and really took those two product lines, those two brands that focused only on coffee machines, decided I was going to really focus and build this into what could be an extraordinary organization. What was your dad's reaction to getting out of the six lines of business? You know, I, I don't know that at the point that we really decided to close them, it was, it was really my call at that point because we had gone through this. I think what I see in businesses, both in my dad and in other businesses, sometimes we're tempted to um, diversify ourselves, our business, businesses and business risks. And it causes us to kind of take on more things than maybe we have the capability or bandwidth to focus on because it feels like we're worried that maybe one part of our business may not last. So we want to bring in something else. So I think my dad had done it really only out of the goodness of his heart, trying to make sure that he was able to sustain the business for the long time. And I, I was coming at it from a different perspective. I didn't want to just get by. My vision was that I wanted to have one thing that I could dedicate myself to and do really well. And I was going to take that chance. Um, so I think my dad took it. He understood it. Maybe he thought it was a little crazy, but, you know, he also got, got his sort of take in the transaction when, when he left. So I think it, was, it wasn't so much his, his concern at that point. You know, he was happy to see where it went. 
So when you acquired the business from your, your, your parent, your father was, did he carry some equity into the new business? No, he didn't. It was an interesting scenario because my dad made the agreement to leave the business, but he um, insisted, I have a brother. He insisted that um, my brother and I both acquire the business together. So my dad left entirely and my brother and I became partners. And um, it was during a, a period of about five years that he and I worked together building the business. He and I worked together kind of to make decisions about what we were closing and what, how we were focusing the business. Was we had quite a specific vision and mission and values that we had articulated well in writing. So my brother and I worked together until this point where the business was going somewhere that he wasn't so interested in continuing. Um, so I actually have been through two family transactions and this acquisition of a competitor where my dad left entirely and eventually my brother left it entirely. And mm. if you were to look at the business in phases, there was this sort of very short period of time that I worked with my dad. Then there was this period of time I worked with my brother. And then there was this period of time that the business was really all in focused on building an extraordinary team of leaders and people that I could depend on. And it was from there that next phase of the business where we interacted with and eventually sold to private equity and the business really reached these incredible uh, growth rates and trajectories. How did your father deal with the success that you enjoyed after he sold his share of the business? With great pride and positivity and um, a, a distance that was measured. I mean, he didn't really want to step on anything. It was, it was a weird, like our family relations and discussions about the business were very limited, not in a, you know, sort of unemotional way, but it was sort of like that's business. And that's one of the ways that I think I was able to be successful transforming a family business was trying to approach it with a very low level of emotion. To me, I was really running a business. The fact that it had these roots to my family was not that important uh, to me. Um, it served well in from a marketing story and from the customer loyalty and customer retention, but I was really focused on making sure that I made business decisions that were right for the business, not because they were right for the personalities or the egos of myself or anyone else that was involved. Sometimes that got me in trouble, but for the most part, it served the business well. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the business a little bit more. So, okay, I, I, we just moved into a new home and whoever made, you built the house, they, they put in one of those kind of fancy coffee makers that are like inset into the walls. Sure, sure. I think Miele makes Miele. it. I, I yeah. think, yeah. And so like this thing, I think you could like launch the space shuttle from this thing, but you, you've got all these buttons. And if you like milk in your coffee, you've got you to gotta clean it because it gets all nasty if you don't clean it. So I'm assuming that's the stuff you sold is like the cleaning solutions you'd put into those sort of coffee yeah, so, so Yeah, exactly. But the business really was focused on the commercial applications of cleaning okay. coffee machines. Eventually it moved and evolved into household where I had lots of consumer products experience from Unilever. But the, the focus, and I think the easier part of the business was the business to business side. So it really started cleaning what we would call filtered coffee machines like you might see mm -hmm. in a New York diner. <laughs> and it yep. evolved to um, everything that you can imagine behind the counter at a Starbucks from the uh, fully automatic espresso machine to the milk system. Eventually, we got into the ice making systems that were used to make these frozen drinks as well. And really, my focus, what I built the business on was one theme of helping people make better tasting coffee. 
Mm. And it was incredibly important to have that focal point for the internal staff as well as for the community to which we marketed it. We were really just talking to them about how can we help you make your coffee better? That led to, I actually have a patent in my name for the world's first uh, grinder cleaner. It's an edible food safe <laughs> tablet that you grind. And it was really came out of the, this idea that we were going to figure out how to do anything that you needed to clean a coffee machine so that com- the coffee tasted better. Were there competitors in the space? Like who were you competing against that also <laughs> helped people clean these coffee machines? Yeah, incredible numbers of competitors exist and still exist for the business, but all very regional or type of equipment specific. So maybe there, was, there were two or three German guys, Italian guys, Australians, Koreans, Japanese. We succeeded in becoming the only company that was truly global. So we started from this just New York-centric metropolitan New York business. And eventually, by the time we sold, we were in over 75 countries with distribution centers in Holland and Hong Kong and really satisfying every element of the coffee channel from Starbucks to Pete's to Costa to these chains all over the world, you know, whether it be Japan, China, with the same concept of helping them make their better tasting coffee. So was it your strategy to differentiate yourself and say to a Starbucks or a Pete's, um, yeah, you could go with the local guys, but they're not going to be able to give you service globally. We're the one company that can actually fulfill your global needs. Absolutely. I think it was also our strategy to convey our excellence and expertise as a way to reassure reassure them that they were working with the best product the people that understood the business, not just about cleaning, but about coffee and what they were trying to achieve. We were very successful in differentiating our chemical-based products from chemicals in general. For example, at a, a place like Starbucks, where they have a guy that buys the cleaning products for toilets and sinks and windows and countertops, our products were actually part of the decision of the coffee buyer the person making the decision about coffee because it was positioned as something that was not just a chemical, it was a special chemical. And for that, it truthfully was and still remains to be because of the company's knowledge and the team's expertise in the types of equipment on which the products are used. And the chemical that you used to clean these machines, was that proprietary? Was there something unique about that? Or was it essentially a generic cleaning product that you packaged into a proprietary product? No, they were all our custom formulas and formulas and, and approaches and brands uh, customized to the types of equipment. We packaged them in powders, liquids, and tablets. A lot of times changing dosages and control levels and foam levels to tailor them for the type of coffee and the type of machine that was being used. We also developed a whole business working directly with the manufacturers of coffee machines, just like that mealy in your house. Mm, yeah, yeah. We would go to them and say, imagine um, Hewlett Packard went to outsource making their cartridges for, for ink. We became sort of the ink that went along with all over 45 different manufacturers of coffee machines came to us for a custom product development program. So that also lent the credibility to what we were doing. And so the, what's the transaction model? I'm assuming you had, you had salespeople that went and called on these? Very few. Um, really very few salespeople. Um, in the beginning, it was just me running around the world, growing international relationships. My first and most important key hire was a head of North American sales. And then we eventually added someone in Europe. Today, the company has people 
real, all around the world in China, West Coast, Central U.S., East Coast, uh, I believe Ireland, Holland, Switzerland. You kind of go around the world where people are strategically ba placed based on the types of customer profiles, whether it be the chains themselves or the uh, manufacturers of coffee machines. Who are so how big, was, how big was the company? The, the, you mentioned there are seven product lines. You decided to focus on one, cleaning. How much revenue were you generating at the time in that one product line? So when I got there, the company in the coffee space was doing under a million dollars in sales. We had 12 employees. Uh, we were really just selling some cleaner for our coffee machines. And, you know, sort of by the time we got to the first exit and closed all of the products, we were about 100 employees. And I said distribution in 75 countries. And after the, at the point of the second exit, we had done a merger and an acquisition through help and assistance and oversight and decision-making truly of my PE partners. And we had grown to a point where the ultimate company that was sold was over 460 employees um, with a, a breadth of products and all specialty cleaning focused. So you're, you're, when you kind of get this business and decide to focus it in, you're, you're less than a million in sales, you're 12 employees. You, you mentioned you made an acquisition. Mm -hmm. How big was the company you acquired? Top line. Yeah, the top line we come, I mean, it was half a million to a million, I, you know, somewhere in that range. It was still a little, little player, but that little kick helped us reach some scale and find a way to start to really grow. You know, one of the things that I always talk about um, with the business is being very consistent and controlled in the way we grew our business. So over 15 consecutive years, we grew 15% a year. Um, we never grew 300%. Um, and we never grew less than 15%. And I was all about trying to manage the bandwidth and resources that I had and that the team had. And I think it led to the focus of really having a clear understanding of who we wanted to be and what we were trying to achieve led to the freedom and the comfort um, to say no. Yeah, I talked a little bit about how my dad had gotten into a lot of different product lines because they felt right. I think I benefited from sort of being frustrated by the fact that the people before me had been drawn in so many different places that I had this intense horse blinder like focus on what I was trying to do. And it made me feel okay saying no to offers or opportunities to make a cleaning product for a, a deep fryer or a kitchen or, you know, we, and we were approached, you know, ice cream machines. People wanted us to make those things. And I just said, you know what, we're good. We do coffee and until we stop growing 15% a year in coffee, we're good. Um, and that, that really helped the business. Yeah, it sounds like it. A, a lot of people right now, once the COVID-19, the shock of COVID-19 starts to wear off a little bit and now the reality of sort of the landscape takes hold, um, I think a lot of owners will be looking at potentially making acquisitions uh, of companies that are, are not doing well through the crisis and, and need some sort of exit. Um, what advice would you give an owner who is looking at the landscape? In your case, you found a company uh, around a million in sales and you acquired it, give you scale. What advice would you have for an entrepreneur who is potentially looking at making an acquisition in these times? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think there are going to be a lot of opportunities because there are clearly businesses that are going to need help and going to be struggled. I think one of the greatest things for me about the business I bought was that 
it was this incredible brand. I bought a brand. It didn't really matter that what they were making, how they were making it. It was a direct competitor who I tried very hard to steal business from. I had gone after his customers pretty aggressively in the previous couple of years. And some of them, when I thought I had done my best sales job, wouldn't budge. And I, I started saying to myself, what am I missing? And I realized this guy had built a beautiful brand that I continued to maintain over the years and years after acquisition. So I think you have to be careful about thinking about what you're going to buy and what is the stickiness of what you're going to buy and what you're going to be looking at. Um, I'd be careful about getting too far away from what you know and what you're good at and really try mm -hmm. and roll in things that, that are a fit. Got it. Got it. Make, uh, makes sense and great, and great advice. So you're, you're up to a couple million bucks in sales when, when you make this acquisition and you're growing at 15% a year. Um, what was it that, that made you think about selling to in, back in 2015? Yeah. So for me, it was super interesting. I had always imagined that I was just building a job to be really happy. I was trying to create an organization that could exist without my presence. That was from day one, sort of my vision to create something that I didn't need to go to every day. I have lots of other hobbies and interests and you know, I was developing this family, you know, I have a family and I, I like to do other things besides just run the business. And, um, I think I woke up one day, I, it was pretty soon before the first sale, and I, I sort of looked at really a clear sense of what our EBITDA had become and that it had crossed certain thresholds. I happen to believe, like, you know, you have to at least cross $5 million EBITDA before you should even start thinking about this stuff. And, you know, we, we were well beyond that, and I started thinking about where are we and what's going on. And then I also started saying, oh, my God, I own this whole thing. It's a little scary because I'm all tied up in this, you know, this is my net worth. So what really got me going was just the decision that we were real, the awareness that we were real. And from there, it was sort of a four or five month barrage of reaching out and talking to everyone and anyone that I could to get a true sense of what the value might one day be, what I had to prepare myself for to get to the exit, and what I had to be sort of aware of would be the problems and the challenges. And also, I loved my job so much that I was only going to sell it for a really, really special price. Because if that price didn't come in, I was happy going back to my job. I liked my team. I liked we were going. As you know, we were growing 15% a year. I was taking a lot of money out of the business every year. And, you know, I was living a pretty good life. And when I said, I don't want to be here today, I didn't have to be. You know, you, know, you never really got away. But the impetus to sell really got from that concentration of value that I became aware of. So you're, you're looking at your net worth and you're like, wow, this is starting to become a, a, a huge nut at percentage wise. And a risk. And, and, and risk. Yeah. 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 And, and, and you never know when the, the next COVID-19 is going to happen, right? This is clearly years before that, but you never know when the, Absolutely. And, you know, being in the chemical business, you never know when something's going to go wrong or you're going to have an accident or an injury or a botched back. I mean, just so many things you worry about. I mean, it's very, very lonely in, in all sorts of businesses and there's all sorts of risk. And I had this beautiful sort of up into the right trend going and I looked at it and said, ooh, what if it goes down? I don't want that to happen. You know, where am I now? And my timing was fortuitous and it was a very proactive process, the exit really thinking about how it was going to be advised, 
who I might want to sell to, what the value, you know, minimums were that had to make it interesting and all when, those things. When you went around and did your sort of uh, kind of conversation and, and information gathering, what were you hearing about valuation? Like what, how were companies like yours being valued? Was it a multiple of EBITDA? What, like, what, yeah. were, you, what were you hearing? It was all multiple to EBITDA. It was all a question about understanding multiple to EBITDA, stickiness of your customer base, lack of customer concentration, um, the quality of the team around you as a dynamic leader. And I looked around and I had kind of all those things going for me. We had no customer above 10% of total sales, consistent growth, great cash flow um, development, very highly pedigreed senior leadership team that were incredible people that I relied on and worked together with. And, you know, we'd really built this organization. So those were the, exactly the things that everyone's saying you needed to be able to show potential investors. And I was like, wow, we have all that now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Were, were, was your senior management team vested? Did they have some shares in the company or some options or something? So maybe a year or two before I got serious about um, realizing that a sale was coming, I, I had an idea that I wanted to be in a position to be able to share with them what I was thinking and not have them freak out that I might sell. And on good advice, I created and built what we called the uh, Ernex ELIP, Employee Liquidity Incentive Plan. And it was, um, it was a structure that I developed with lawyers that really set aside a pool of, of shares or credits in the company only to have value in the event of a sale and um, all, while the employee was still employed by the company. And I awarded these shares or these tickets or credits, whatever you might call them, to my senior leadership team as a way of saying, listen, this is only good if the sale exceeds this value. But if it does and you're here and you support me through it, this is going to be the way we calculate how you participate. And I think that was great because it took this pressure off of me. I didn't have to keep secrets from the key team. I was able to get their support and buy-in and know that they had a clear incentive without um, giving up control. And it really was something that um, I'm very happy. I was advised to do it by a friend who had developed something similar in a Silicon Valley company that was not public. And he was using it as a way to, to hire. He needed something like that as a way to bring people in, but he couldn't give away anything before knowing what a sale might be or where true valuations were. And, and who did you choose to uh, participate in the ELIP? Everybody or just the senior leadership team? Just the senior leadership team. I had uh, a core team of five or six from, you know, marketing and chief operations officer and um, head of sales, you know, that, that core essential, essential team involved. Yeah. And what advice would you give another entrepreneur trying to figure out, you know, what, let's just like as a proportion of an annual salary, like how much do they need to kind of earn as a result of a liquidity event for it to be meaningful, for it to be kind of real, to so, feel like. Yeah, it's interesting. So it, the pool was set up, if I recall, to be about 10% of a potential sale, but mm -hmm. I never actually awarded the full 10%. I sort of gave the credits out year by year. I think ultimately people, like key people got as much as two, between two and four to five times their annual base salary wow. at the okay. exit. So it was, big, yeah. it, it was real. A, like I gave yeah, real yeah. money away. 
Yeah, 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 for sure. And so is that when, when you hear people refer to a phantom equity plan, was it essentially that? Essentially that, but really done with a lot of uh, thought to tax consideration for myself and for my employees. And also um, a lot, it was, it was structured in a really uh, clever, thoughtful way by an employment uh, lawyer that I had worked with uh, of the law firm uh, for many years. Yeah. Of course, tax jurisdictions, you know, depending on your tax jurisdiction, United States versus Europe, whatever, what, what it, you were based in the U S when you did it. Yes. We were based. Yeah. In what US. were the tax considerations? Like, what did you do? What elegant sort of tips did you change? If I, or things yeah. If I use? recall the, the most significant part of it was that the um, compensation was better for me probably than for them it was paid out as um, salary. Okay. At, at close. So, you know, so it was, you know, to the business, it was an expansion to the employee it was, it was income, which wasn't ideal for them, but it was still, you know, money that they weren't counting on and they were still getting their regular salaries. I think that was the most significant uh, element of it. Right. Okay. That's, that's helpful for sure. So as you did this canvassing and sort of informal conversations with folks, people were saying multiple of you, but what sort of range were you hearing? Was it, was a sort of fair range for a company like yours? Well, I wasn't even interested in anything less than double digits um, because I looked at it as, you know, I got to get paid for at least the next 10 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, yeah, it was definitely, definitely in the world. And that was, that was where it was starting. And that's what that type of business was. High cash flow, very high EBITDA margin as a percent of sale, you know, it was always in that, you know, sort of double digit range. Um, and um, yeah, you know, at the same time, much smaller businesses that I had looked at or acquired, I wasn't willing to pay that multiple for when they were smaller, you know, less than under that, let's say under 5 million of EBITDA, you know, it's a different mm-hmm. multiple. And I think, you know, I'm no expert in this. I'm no expert in the tax stuff we talked about either. So, yeah, you know, yeah. is that, is that, um, caution. yeah, yeah. You know, is that um, it's, it's a matter of um, as that EBITDA that you can deliver gets bigger. It seems that the multiple goes up proportionally and you, know, you get some pretty, pretty big scale lifts. And I think that was, my very, very smart private equity investors that invested the first time that led it to the second private equity sale knew what they were doing in terms of mergers and um, acquisitions to build an EBITDA portfolio that became very cash flow positive and became very desirable for the next investor. Got it. So, so let's get into that now. So you're, you're, you're having conversations. People are saying, you know, you might get double digits EBITDA for this. That's like, like they're, they're sort of telling you that's a reasonable expectation. Do you hire an M&A professional? What was the next step? Yeah, in absolutely, process? absolutely. So yeah, so I set out and I basically started to identify who might be logical investment bankers to engage. And I selected four that I invited to do a presentation to me. On what the criteria did you use to, to shortlist it down to four? Um, well, it's funny. A lot of it was conversation, a lot of it things. I wanted um, specialists in chemicals because I was a chemical company, but I also wanted specialists in consumer products because I liked the fact that I could be positioned as consumer product as well as chemical. I went boutique and I went name brand. And those were the four. And in the end, I felt like a business that was unknown, as unknown as mine, not particularly sexy, soap for cleaning coffee machines, <laughs> was going to be helped by having a prestigious brand that was out there marketing the business for me. And ultimately, I went with R.W. Baird who were really a nice fit for us, but I, I had all four of these companies and any one of them I think could have done an excellent job. I just was very comfortable, one with the banker at Baird, how he and I worked together and I had confidence that he was gonna stick with me and not hand me off to someone else. Um, I had confidence in the types of deals and transactions. 
but the, you know, we call it, when I was an investment banker, they'd call it the dog and pony show where they're all presenting their pitches. It was very comforting to me that all four of the banks were roughly in the same valuation world. So that confirmed for me that nobody was sort of selling me a, a load of garbage and that there were real possibilities to, to think this way. But for me, it was really important to have a brand that brought credibility to who we were as a sort of unusual type of business. And I think Baird served well from that perspective. Got it. So they put together a book and started to shop the business. Do you remember how many companies they went to in the initial <laughs> round? So super, two, two parts I'll, I'll address there. The first is I put together the first book. Because okay. before I went to anyone, I basically said, I need to put in writing how I would sell my own company to someone else. What's, what are we doing well? What are our problems? I, I sort of laid it all out. I wrote about 50 pages for myself, organized it almost along the lines of my business plan. You know, what are these sections? What is our plan? Who are our customers? What's our customer concentration camp, uh, concentra concentration? So they came to me with an initial list. Um, once they were awarded the business and they put together the book, they gave me a list of private equity firms that um, might be relevant um, partners as well as strategics. And um, I had real concern about working with a private equity firm that were not cool, <laughs> that were not good guys. I had known, I have a lot of friends that are in private equity to this day from my previous life. And some of them, I just would not want to be in partnership with um, as investors in my business. Why? You know, I think as a guy who was an operator of a business for so long, I have a little bit of skepticism toward just financial engineering. I wanted to find a private equity investor or strategic partner, but I knew I kind of, I was pretty young. I wanted to maybe have a chance to stick around in the business and be convinced I would stay longer. But I wanted to feel that someone was going to bring something operationally to the business that was new and fresh and challenging for me. I wasn't interested in the firms that were just straight numbers. Let's put a bunch of debt on it. Let's strip this out. Let's generate it. I wanted to build a great business. I still loved my job. If I was going to go back and work with these guys as my partners, because I did retain significant equity, I wanted them to like show me something and bring something good to the table. So for that reason, it was a very, very small universe of bidding companies. I loved my business. I was advised by a few friends and even one of the private equity firms who was a little bit self-interested not to show it to too many people because word would get out maybe to our customers about the mechanics of the business. So it was a small subset of under 10 that we took it to who I met with individually, personally, took through, shared everything with. And it was very much a personal decision about the firm I went with more so than just about straight dollars and cents. It was about how they impressed me, what I thought they could bring, and how much I was going to want to work with them because I kind of wanted to work with them. I wanted some friends. I wanted some partners. I wanted someone to take the load off my shoulders too. Yeah. How many of the, the less than 10 ended up preparing, a, a, you know, offering, giving you a letter of intent? I want to say six, five or six. Um, and then we, we got a little bit down the road with two strategics. Um, in looking with strategics, from my perspective, strategics had to really, really outbid private equity for me to be interested in selling 100% all at once. I like the idea of keeping a little bit behind to see what would happen and how it would grow and have that proverbial second bite of the apple. And what the was the, yeah, yeah. Well, sorry, what was the proportion of the deal that the PE firms were asking you to carry? How much equity were they most asking you to carry? Like, they, they all wanted control. 
Um, you know, so I think the it was between fifty five and eighty in their that they pitch, wanted to that they that wanted they were yeah. buying yeah yeah they wanted yeah. they wanted as much as they could get. Um, yeah, between fifty five and eighty, there were different deals, different terms, different um, debt loads that they wanted to put on the business as well, which you know had some factor to do with it. But for me, it was. Also, I, I, it was very important to me to have confidence that the PE firm that I went with um, was not going to retrade me and was not going to give me some. Well, I wanted to know that the initial offer that they were going to give me for the business was not going to be uh, nibbled away during uh, due diligence. And um, the, the firm I ended up going with, I, I can say their name, is a firm called Quartet Group. And that, the advice on their reputation that I had had from Baird and from others was that these were good, solid, trustworthy, honest guys. And for that reason, I, um, I let them go at the business alone um, with uh, 30 days to sign and close. And they were fantastic. They asked the right questions. They asked true questions. We had some hiccups in the business in that 30-day period that we talked through, I explained, but not once did they changed what they committed to in the beginning. And that to me all along said that was the right, right firm to go with because they held true to their word. So retrading of course is uh, for those listening is the, is the, the kind of insidious, uh, <laughs> sometimes legitimate, oftentimes illegitimate attempt by a buyer to renege on the, what they offer in a letter of intent during the due diligence phase. And in your case, you validated with your investment banker that, no, these guys have a good reputation. What else did you do? Again, I'm thinking practical things that other entrepreneurs could, could follow uh, to ensure they weren't going to retrade on you. Well, I mean, for me, I said it earlier, like, I love my job. Um, I loved doing what, it was, what I was doing. And I was pretty committed and confident that if they retraded, I didn't have to sell. You know, and, you know, so all of those mechanics were there. Sure, it had been a lot of work, but it was also done at a very compressed period of time because I didn't want to stop running the business. Um, so, you know, I, I pushed the, the pace on everything um, from, you know, it's funny, I'm pretty proud of the fact that from sort of accepting the offer to closing was 36 days. Um, and we just ran through it. I gave them the right and they, you know, we had some, you know, there's 30 days you have to wait for antitrust anyway. And we got this deal done and I wanted to get back to running the business. And if they were going to mess with me or something was going to change, I was going back. I had my business, they, you know, and that was that mindset, that mentality, that comfort that I liked the job I had really gave me a lot of freedom, a lot of power, I think, to be stern in the things that I shared. But yeah. And what was the range in value, like on a percentage terms between the low and the high of these six offers that you got? Are we talking kind of 50%, 10%, no. like how big a range? 5%. They were tight. Wow. It was really tight. Yeah. And they were all right really in surprising. there. Right in there. Yeah. Some slightly deal, different deal structures, different payout terms, different incentives. Things like, but if you really put it down, they were tight. So you like the guys at Cortex. Cortex, is that the name of the yep, firm? Cortex. Yeah, Cortex, excuse me. Uh, so you like them. What else made their offer, like I'm thinking of the deal terms, what else made their offer the most uh, attractive? Well, I think they did a really good job at that point, 2015. It was still early, um, you know, rep and warranty insurance 
was, you know, part of their deal from day one, which explain really, that for people that don't know what, so, that, what so generally in a transaction, transaction like this, there'd be an expectation to put a certain amount of the deal value in escrow, usually up to 10%. Sometimes it could be more or less to um, pay for any unknown, maybe tax liabilities or things that were not discovered in the beginning. And at that point, I think it's pretty common right now. They were incorporating it to the deal on the price insurance that, um, covered them in the event that there were unknown expenses so that I was not forced to put nearly as much of the deal value in escrow. Very comforting. I think also their diligence, their speed to get through the process, the thoughtfulness of the way they approach the transaction, the structure, um, my employment role, they, they presented it all at once and said, this is how we want, we see you involved. This is how we want you involved. We want you to do this. So really all of the things. And also um, I like the thoughtfulness of the options package they wanted for the key team and more team than I had in that um, ELIP plan that we talked about earlier. So they, they really thought about everything. You know, this is what they do. Uh, and I'm sure many PE firms do it that way, but I was just impressed and confident and comforted by the order, the organization, and the speed at which they delivered things very clearly. Got it. Got it. So that was, that was comforting for you. And because the valuation range was so limited, it was, it, there were other, it sounds like there were other factors than just the, the sheer valuation that were, absolutely. That were important. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't think they were the highest. I think there was, they'd like to say that too. They always like to tell people stuff like that, but I'm pretty sure they weren't the highest, you know? Yeah, they were close, but, but it was sort of, you know, it's, I made a choice because of them and a little bit here or there didn't matter if it was the right deal. And they were going to apply some debt on the business or they did. Yeah. Everybody put debt on the business. Yeah. Everybody was putting on different levels of debt. And were they asking you to, to in some way uh, guarantee that debt? No, no, no. Um, No, it was, you know, I rolled a certain amount of equity and, um, you know, it was, I owned part of the company that held the debt anyway. So I, you know, I had it in that sense, but nothing personal now. I've always wondered this. So they're placing a value on your company of X times EBITDA. Then you are rolling some equity into their company. Mm-hmm. How do you determine the value or the, the valuation of their company? I'm assuming it's the same X times EBITDA that they placed on your company. Yeah. Or how do you value the... The other entity. Yeah, everything was in it the same. Uh, well, at the role, the role was the percentage of what you left behind. Ooh, I don't remember exactly precisely, but the value is the value. I mean, there's, I think there's probably some tax differences of what the value of the basis that you roll versus what you're doing. But I think in effect, you're basically selling the whole company and buying back at their price. Got it. And so were they rolling you into other assets that they own in the cleaning product space or the no, coffee No, no, space? no, no, no. We were, you know, I, it was, it's a, it was an independent business within their portfolio. I see. Yeah. I see. I, I, I was under the impression that they had other assets that they were going to kind of stitch together to break, to, to, uh, that was not, that was not how it, it was set up. It was a standalone business. That was one member, one part of their portfolio and run the way ultimately down the road after I moved, uh, abroad, they made decisions with the business, with my input and other people's input about mergers and acquisitions and things like that. So were you staying on as CEO? Yeah, I stayed on as CEO for about 15 months. (laughs) And um, it was pretty soon after the sale that I had this sort of epiphany type discussion with my wife about this 
newfound financial position we were in and what we might want to do with things in life and for ourselves and for our young family. And um, I remember the board meeting where I sat with the, the partners and the investors and said, um, this is what I want to do. Uh, I give them a year. And I worked with them to hire my replacement uh, to get the team ready to organize things, to manage customer transitions. And I moved from there when I got to Italy to a, uh, a board role. Got it. Got it. And so from like, it's funny, you know, I'm, I'm wearing my skeptics hat a little bit, but like, I'm looking at this private equity company and I'm saying, okay, these guys know nothing about coffee. They know nothing about cleaning products. All they have is a checkbook and the ability to borrow money. So what are they adding to the, the equation that you couldn't do on your own? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. But you know, I I think what they were adding for me was a little bit of relief of the responsibility. So all of a sudden, every, you know, million dollar capital investment wasn't all my million dollars. It -hmm. made me feel freer to think more aggressively. I think they really helped professionalize uh, some of our staffing. I think they, they helped us think a lot about our online presence, which they had quite a bit of experience with. Um, They also helped us hire and think more about the business consumer side of the business, which I said, I kind of, even though I had a background in it, wasn't too focused on. And that was the place that they did have a fair amount of experience operationally and with other businesses. So I think there are plenty of PE firms that are just money guys and just financial engineers. I think there are also others that have true operational knowledge, savvy from years of experience about how to deal with pretty common business things and have seen it done a few ways. And, you know, I had seen a lot done myself as well, but uh, it was exciting to have this breadth of responsibility and uh, to share and, and knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand that they went on to sell the company in 2019. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And how so was that, that transaction for them? It was, it was great for everybody. Um, the, um, when I talked about that consumer piece, the merger of the business was done with a, another business that was excellent in specialty cleaning products for households with distribution of products in stores like Walmart and Target and, and the like. And we had this great coffee machine cleaning expertise, but had not done a great job developing the uh, business to consumer business. So the idea of the merger was really to bring that other partner into the space to let them uh, oversee what was happening with the business to consumer and to allow the Ernex team to stay focused on that business to business model. So it was a really smart, smart model, um, specialty cleaning to go through. And from, um, from an exit perspective, um, I don't know I'm at liberty to say exactly what the multiple was, but I believe um, in general, Cortex deals are, are publicly, you know, plus three times multiple on exit of what they've been investments have been doing. So they've, they've performed pretty well, like tripling their, their investments on average. Their, their investment. And part of that's the debt that they apply. And then a part of it's the evaluation improvement, I'm assuming over, exactly. over time, growing and so forth. I, I want to turn, if I may, just to the kind of the personal side of the equation. Um, so you've moved to Italy. Yeah. Young kids. Um, everything's on the internet these days. So uh, if they haven't already, I'm sure the kids have sort of figured out that dad's uh, done pretty well out of this company. How are you dealing with that conversation with your kids? You know, 
I think the conversation with my kids is all about appreciating the world they live in. I think one of the things uh, moving to Italy was important to us was giving them an opportunity to be exposed to so many different cultures and languages and ways of life. And in a city like Florence, there are different levels of success of people, but in a, you know, in the community that we're living in, I think that we live our life no differently than we did 10 years ago. Um, We're not extravagant people personally, but we're also not wanting to be in a situation where we're being extravagant towards our kids. We're here about life and experiences. And I think that's what we impress upon our kids are not about material things. It's about relationships. It's about cultural understanding. Those are the things that we as a family get great value in observing how different communities, different friends, different backgrounds approach different holidays. You know, we, I had a long conversation with my children uh, this week during this whole coronavirus situation about how the culture in Italy is one of multi-generational living. You know, so many of their friends not only live with their parents, but also live with their grandparents. Mm. And that's something that is not really common in the U.S. For my kids, it's even more distant. They're learning about how to use Zoom and this house party app to talk to their grandparents, you know, to talk to their grandparents who they've been far away from. And in this situation, their grandparents are well protected because Mm. my kids are floating around everywhere. Who knows what they might be bringing around to them. But my, my family, you know, it's about those types of things and closeness with each other. So financial things aren't so important. Um, And we do our, our part to try and really, talk with the kids and involve them in philanthropic opportunities to give them each an opportunity to select causes and charities and situations that are important to them to make contributions to and to be involved with. Um, I have one daughter that wants to be a tick scientist because she's always <laughs> learning about the, the flow of the ecology and things like that. But the, you know, so, so that's kind of how we look at it. What do you miss most about running a company? The people, the teams, you know, my teams and, um, the thrill of the collective teamwork on accomplishing something, on a new sale or solving a manufacturing problem or achieving that new hit of efficiency that we had never done before. And that's what it is. I mean, to me as a leader, as a CEO of a company, your job is just about the people. It's the hardest part, but it's also the best part. It's, it's helping them stay focused. It's helping them stay prioritized. It's helping them avoid distractions, but also finding ways to celebrate each other and celebrate what you're building together. I think that's what I miss. And now I'm trying to do that in other parts of my life. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever get lonely? Well, not really. You know, I'm, um, I was pretty lonely being CEO. I'll say that. As much as I love my team, I, sometimes there are times that I really, really felt alone. CEO, especially before investors. Do I get lonely now? No, not really. You know, it's a very social environment. I've spent a lot of time um, since um, stepping down as CEO, getting involved as an investor, private equity investing in the coffee industry. So with other partners, I have a small private equity firm that actually makes investments in much smaller businesses that we hope to help build to extraordinary growth in some in Germany, some in Switzerland, some in the US. And I work closely where I can with those CEOs and those teams, giving them my advice, my sort of vision, my, I think mostly just asking them tough questions that push Mm. them to where they should go or what they should think about. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, Tell me about the book, because the book sounds apropos these days. 
Yeah. So, so the book that I wrote, it was published last fall is called grow like a lobster and it's uh, subtitled how to plan and prepare for extraordinary business results. And the book is based on um, all these things that I felt I learned running my business that I wish someone had told me when I was getting started. And it was really my thing that I hope to give back. So um, if you had worked for me as CEO for many years, I would talk about the lobster. And I would always say to everyone, yeah, things are great right now, but remember the molt is coming. And what I meant by that was that every time a lobster needs to grow, it has to literally rip its soft inner body out from inside of its hard protective shell. And it ends up laying totally vulnerable on the ocean floor, ready for anybody to like eat it. And there are are times running a business, there are times in life that I feel like I've molted, um, where everything is not going right. And um, I believe that if we remember the lobster and how a lobster grows, and we can understand that the molts are going to come, we're going to be better prepared to handle them and, and deal with them when they arrive. So right now, the world is clearly molting. Uh, we've all lost our shell. We are all this crazy, vulnerable, weak, confused, uncertain group of people that I think there's a huge opportunity to stop, breathe a little bit, see what we can do to plan and prepare for the time when the molt ends and our shell will be hard again. And, you know, in Italian, they say, andrà tutto bene. Everything will be okay. Um, that's the call sign. So I have to hope it will be. Sometimes I worry, but I believe that everything will be okay eventually. Yeah. So the book is called Grow Like a Lobster, available anywhere you buy books, in particular Amazon, I'm assuming. Exactly, exactly. Well, this was an amazing and very timely interview. I really appreciate you doing it, Josh. Oh, I had a total pleasure. Thank you so much for including me and uh, really enjoyed it. Awesome. Be well. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.